Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget you can listen to the whole show live on your radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or on the Times Radio app at 10 till 1, Monday to Friday. Uh, but thanks for catching up on the podcast wherever you're listening. Uh, coming up on today's episode, you'll have heard on uh, Friday's episode my interview with Nadim Zahari, the Education Secretary. It was one of the things that really struck me was him talking about uh, the energy bills going up for schools, the impact that might be having on schools. And we've heard loads of stories of schools uh, trying, looking at having to cut their budgets. Maybe school dinners are shrinking because of rising food prices. So we take an in-depth look at that and our big thing today. So that's coming up in just a moment on the podcast. First, though, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. No Libby Purvis today because she's still on her boat. Uh, so instead, Rachel Sylvester is joined by Carol Lewis. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, no Libby Rachel this week because Libby is off on her boat. And as we discovered last week, the signal's not good. So, uh, joining me in the studio, uh, we've got uh, Times uh, Deputy Property Editor, Carol Lewis. Hello. How are you? Very well, thanks. Nice to have you with us. And we've also joined by Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Nice to have you both here. Uh, let's talk about uh, the politics of a windfall tax. It feels as if there's sort of something in the air. Something is going on. It's now, we've gone from absolutely not, we're not doing that, to we're still completely opposed to it, but nothing's off the table. <laughs> uh, it feels like that's the direction we're inching our way towards, you know, George Osborne said over the weekend he thought it was inevitable. Um, Carol, the economics of a windfall tax, does it make sense? In some ways, yes. Um the, the taxation of oil and gas companies is more complicated than you might think. They pay the corporation tax of 19%. They then pay extra taxes on their profits in the North Sea, which can add up to double tax. I think Shell has said it's effectively paying 35.5% tax. It's, it's, but then they're also given tax reliefs. They're given generous tax reliefs for decommissioning in the North Sea. They're given generous tax reliefs for investment. So it's kind of a give-and-take situation. It's not straightforward. But I think, given the windfall tax, most people are in favour of it because they want help today with the cost-of-living crisis. But, on the other hand, and there is always another hand, the companies are using the windfall tax to buy back shares. Now, the fewer shares you have in the system, the higher the price, the higher the dividend that goes to pensioners and pension savers, who traditionally are Tory voters. So it's who, who are you helping, the give and take of the whole thing. Um, I don't think it's, it's about being Conservative or Labour. I know that's coming into it. But, I mean, they've always said they're the, the, the party of low taxes. And, and as we've seen at the moment, that just isn't true. Uh, Rachel, so that's the economics of it. What, the, the politics of it, um, it, it feels as if they've just called it wrong. They actually, maybe they assumed the public wouldn't support it and it's proved phenomenally popular with the public, and particularly at a time when 
the Labour Party has seemed to be doing better on, you know, handling the economy, uh, on your side, all of those sort of key metrics. That actually, it, it sort of reached a point now where just for political expediency, they have to do it, don't they? I think the politics of this is so interesting. So you've now got Labour setting the agenda on a sort of key economic question. Uh, and always it's so important which party is most trusted on the economy at an election time. Uh, and now it looks like the Tories are going to take what was, first of all, a Labour proposal. And I thought very interesting in the paper this morning, all the briefing was that, you know, obviously this is an idea that George Osborne had, that Margaret Thatcher had. Windfall taxes are a very conservative thing, whereas a few days ago it was, this is a deeply un-Tory plan. Um, so I think that definitely the politics are moving. And in the end, um, the Prime Minister must know that his fortune and the Conservative Party's fortunes will depend on people not feeling poorer at the next election. And you've got now this the cost of living crisis, particularly um, the uh, driven by this idea of fuel poverty. And you have to remember, you know, we had in the paper this morning, fuel poverty hit to, um, predicted to hit 40% of households. And fuel poverty is a slightly amorphous concept. But what that means is people can't afford to eat, people can't afford to buy new shoes for their children. Uh, and the thing that really struck me was when one of the supermarket bosses talked about how people weren't buying uh, potatoes in the food banks because they couldn't afford to cook them because of the price of gas. Um, so this is a kind of real-world issue. It's not just about economics or politics. Um, and I suppose that's a key point, isn't it, uh, Carol? Is there's sort of two conversations. If, if the argument for not uh, doing something now is the impact on better-off people's pension pots... Yeah you know, you're picking a side and ultimately there's a political impact of that as well. There is, and they've, they've been scrabbling around. They haven't really had a policy. We've had sort of these statements like get your freedom pass and spend the day roaming around a on bus. a bus or, yeah. or become a banker. And meanwhile, they've been goaded by Bernard Looney, who's the chief executive of BP, who's basically said, my company's a cash machine and I don't care if you give me a windfall tax. So I think they really, really, it's an easy target for them. But it's what they do with the money that's now in question as well. Does it go to future greater energy independence and sustainability? Or does it go towards people's pockets now? Now, like Rachel's saying, that they need it. And actually, it was interesting, um, uh, Rachel, um, Rachel uh, the weekend, George Osborne was speaking to Andrew Neil, and he basically said, when asked, well, what would you actually do with this money? He just said, just send people checks, which I'm not sure is mm. really a thing we've done in this. They do it in America. Uh, but they've, it's not something we've really done in this country, but literally just sending a check to every household, uh, yeah. or, or at least low, low, uh, low income households. And saying, look, well, you know, this is I mean, just take this money and do with it as, as you please. As you wish, exactly. I mean, I think it's got to be something that gets to people right now. And the problem with, you know, investing in nuclear power plants or, you know, even um, changing the planning system to bring down house prices, those things can take. 20 years or longer. That's not just one electoral cycle. And, but when actually people are worrying right now uh, and it's going to get worse in October. So it needs to be something that's very immediate. Uh, and often the kind of Whitehall system and the policy proposals that ministers are presented with doesn't work like that. So I think, you know, maybe not a check literally arriving through the door, but something that is going to bring down the costs immediately is what they've got to do. 
Well, we'll see what happens. It feels like something which is uh, which is coming down the, the, the track one way or the other. Um, uh, Carol, let's talk about your area of expertise. <laughs> Houses which are paying more than salaries. Yes, I remember. I remember. <laughs> I remember doing a lot of sort of a few years ago when I was working at Mail Online, crunching the numbers on this. The number of places where basically homes are going up faster than average wages. Yeah, so this is the right move figures out today that showed that over the pandemic, over the last two years, your the asking price, and it's clear, it must be clear, it's the asking price yes. has gone up by fifty five thousand, which is more than your average salary, which was nearer thirty two thousand. Obviously, sold prices are not the same as asking prices; they tend to be a bit lower. There's also a lag in reporting those, so it's quite difficult to put them side by side to measure them. But we can't get away from the fact house prices are still going yeah. up, even though everything that's happening in the economy and, you know, the, the uh, cost of living crisis, 9% inflation, house prices are still going up. They're being propped up by this um, lack of supply, high demand still. People have a lot of savings. Um, interest rates are going up, but they're still historically very low. I mean, they're 1%. Yeah. And even if they go up to 3%, you know, look back to 1989 and they were 15%. In 2007, they were 5.5%. So historically, they're very low. Most people are on fixed rates uh, for a long time, so that cushions the blow. The first place we're going to see stress, actually, is in the rental market because rents are flying up. They're not, they're not held down by fixed rates. So Why are rents going up? It's the same thing, high demand. Okay. And, and also they're not held artificially low by five-year five fixes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're going up. So you'll see people starting to default on their rent. Yeah. Then the landlords might start selling out or being repossessed. That will be the first sign of stress. The most pessimistic um, prediction I've seen is for a drop in house prices of 3% next year and 2% the year after. So it's not a crash, it's a dip. But why are those rents going up? Not because the price is going up for landlords, it's just that they can put them up. They can put them up because they've got a lot more people looking yeah, yeah. to rent yeah, than yeah. there are properties. So they've got choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they've got that. And so that's how, that's how rents go up. Well, that's another th thing for us to have to worry about. Um, Rachel, I want to ask you about this, um, the care review, uh, which is that, because I know in your um, overseeing the Education uh, Commission, this sort of all feeds into the, the same thing. Tens of thousands more youngsters will end up in care unless radical changes are made to protect, uh, uh, to, made to child protection in England. This independent review uh, on a council-run children's service says struggling families needed early interventions to ensure they don't reach crisis point. This comes up again and again in education, doesn't it? Mm, um, mm. The, the earlier you can catch problems for children, the better. Yeah, absolutely. And the outcomes for children in care are really bad and educationally. Um, but also, you're absolutely right, the earlier you intervene, the more impact it has. So... 40% of the gap between richer and poorer children that has emerged by the time they take their GCSEs at 16 is already there by the time they start school at five. So there's a kind of, if you're going to level the playing field, you need to start right at the beginning. And that does mean intervening in families, which ministers are nervous about because they think it's the nanny state. But I was speaking to a head teacher um, the other day in a sort of really deprived area. Uh, and she said, you know, children were turning up in reception at school, unable to even say their own name, uh, still drinking from baby bottles rather than cups, uh, still in nappies. A half of the reception class were still in nappies. Some of them hadn't been weaned. Uh, um, you know, so it's the, there is a kind of real problem 
um, in and and that's why it's so important that you have kind of proper nurseries that families can um, send children to, and that they're in, the most vulnerable families are encouraged to. Uh, get that kind of high quality childcare as backup and also that you have something that um, just helps families who are struggling, helps parents to know what you are supposed to do, um, that you do need to speak to your child, that uh, affection and hugs are really important. It's not just about making sure they have the right food. Uh, just on that sort of um, early intervention, when, when I spoke to Nadim Zahawi on the show on Friday, he was hailing his family hubs and the way it was going to bring together different parts of state support as a sort of one-stop shop for new parents to get all the help they needed. And I pointed out to him, it sounded quite a lot like the Sure Start centres that uh, yeah. the Conservative-led coalition had shut quite a lot. What is your... Because you to be honest, you know these things better than I do. Am I being cynical to think that family hubs are just a reinvention of uh, Sure no, Start centres? No, you're totally right. But the problem is they're, they're talking about doing them in 75 areas and a 1,000 Sure Start centres or more have shut. So this is a kind of drop in the ocean. Um, and in a way, they're admitting that they've got to go back to something that was starting to make a difference. Um, but the problem is it's not being done with... It's not enough. It's not being done with enough kind of money or enough... Uh, breadth to really cover all the families that need it. The thing that I found shocking, yeah. and I'm not an expert like Rachel at all, the thing I found shocking was the, the talk of a windfall tax, we're back to windfall tax, yeah, exactly. on the 15 uh, biggest providers. I mean, that's incredible. They've got, they've got profit margins of like 23%. Yeah. Off, mm -hmm. you know, it shouldn't, shouldn't be like that, surely. I, I was surprised that, the, the, um, and I suppose this is what happens when when uh, private companies get so involved. It was calling for a windfall tax on the largest private children's home providers to fund an overhaul of England's care system. But I bet the people working in those care homes don't feel like they're no, but the bosses, my dear, there there's was money somewhere. Yeah, there was talk of bosses riding around in sports cars and buying yeah. racehorses. Um, but yeah, you're right. The workers probably, probably don't nowhere. feel like they're uh, no, they're washed with cash. No. Well, we'll see what the uh, what the outcome of all that is. Carol Lewis and Rachel Sylvester. Then you can, of course, you can read them in the Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how the cost of living crisis is hitting our schools. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Okay, so if you listened on Friday, you'd have heard my interview with the Education Secretary for England, Nadim Zahari. Uh, we tried to... The radical, the radical new approach that we've been taking to these uh, interviews with cabinet ministers of talking about their brief. So instead of shouting at them about COVID tests or Partygate or whatever it might be, we talked about... We did it with uh, Grant Shapps the other day. Jeremy Hunt uh, was talking about his book on uh, the NHS... Uh, week before last. Last week, it was Nadim Zahawi, the Education Secretary. And in particular, I pressed him on uh, the reports that we've been getting of schools really struggling with rising energy and food costs. So I asked him if the government would either support schools with extra money or would they be forced to start making cuts? So in the spending review, I got a good settlement from the Chancellor of uh, an initial £7 billion for schools. Much of it front-loaded to this year and next year, so four billion, with actually additional headroom, which is why I, I thought it was a good settlement, for some of that inflationary pressure, of course, and to make sure that schools really do deliver on the recovery, we've got another five billion yeah. uh, for that. We're looking very closely, so let me 
give you an example on energy costs. Energy costs are about 1.4, 1.5% of a school's budget. The schools who are out of contract, which are a minority, that 1.4, 1.5% jumps up to maybe 7, 8, 9, 10%. So we're looking very carefully at that. But I, in many ways, deliberately got a bit of headroom. It's keeping, a, clo it's keeping a close eye and actually saying you've got to help those schools with their energy bills. Well, Are you going to help those schools with their energy bills? So I, I was, what I'm trying to say to you is... You've got the money, you're keeping a close eye, the bills are going up. Are you going to give them some of that extra right, money? So before we even got into this inflationary spike, this yeah. global fight against inflation, which is going on in America and yeah, New yeah, York, no, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. I anticipated it. Yeah. So when I negotiated my SR settlement... Yes. So you've got the I money, got you've got the money, it was very smart you did that. Yeah. Are you going to give it to schools? We, to do, pay we do, them we, give, we, we are giving it, you absolutely. Are. We are absolutely giving it to schools, so we, we, with that additional headroom, yeah. it, you know, our schools, we had the foresight here to our anticipate schools, that. Our schools who are out of contract and seeing their energy bills rocket, are you giving them extra money to help with that? So I'm looking to see how I can help those if they are out of contract, partly to help them you know, get the best deal, yeah. uh, but also to see you know, where that pressure is really acute, yeah. how we can help them. That was Nadeem Sahawi, the Education Secretary for England, speaking to me on Friday. Well, since then, we've had loads of messages from you, from teachers, from heads, from governors, from parents. One parent we heard from uh, talked about how their portions in school dinners have been getting smaller or uh, the, the normal meals that are laid on are running out much more quickly and the children at the back of the queue get left with half a jacket potato. Uh, Sue got in touch, said, as a governor of two schools, we do have concerns about the running... Uh, running the schools because of rising costs. We've also got huge worries for our families as they have been greatly affected by the cost of living crisis. This in turn puts more pressure on budgets as schools step in to support. Adam said, as a chair of Governors of Maintained School, which is becoming an academy, we had to make redundancies this year to balance the budget. We are now looking at a 107% increase in energy costs. Matt said, I'm a governor of a primary school in Essex. We expect our energy costs to rise 266% in the coming year compared to the current one. Essentially the cost of one teacher. The school is in desperate need of repair in some places and the money we've set aside for this will easily be swallowed up by the energy increase. A lot of people I talk to assume the government will step in, but I'm not so sure, given their habit of holding out from helping unless Marcus Rashford campaigns about it. We've also heard from Simon Fan from, the, uh, from a food bank in Truro in Cornwall he told us the demand of the food bank is doubled while donations had, uh, had decreased as people themselves, who would normally be donating, tried to make ends meet. He said he's seen evidence of children getting food poisoning as parents turn off fridges overnight to save energy and they're wearing unwashed clothes because of the cost of running washing machines. So let's get more of a sense of what is happening in schools right now by speaking to uh, some school leaders. Paul Gosling is the head of Exeter Road Community Primary School in Exmouth and is president of the National Association of Head Teachers. Hi, Paul. Oh, morning. Uh, good, good to have you with us. Uh, we've got Sammy Wright, deputy head at the Southmore Academy in Sunderland. Hi, Sammy. And uh, Evelyn Ford is head teacher at Copthall School uh, in North London. Hi, Evelyn. Hi there. Just give us a sense. Uh, I'll come to each of you, first of all, just to uh, sort of uh, sum up the impact of uh, rising food and energy bills what that's uh, what impact that's having and the difficult decisions you're having to make. You, first of all, Paul, down in Devon. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, food costs are going up. For example, our chickens go up by a third. So you have to start making choices of the school. We, we provide school meals for our children and we also provide school meals to another school. Now, we are really 
try not to increase the cost to parents, particularly those who pay. Um, and, and at the moment, the school is soaking up the difference. So the, the, the food costs are going up. The, the, the cost to cook the food, the gas bill, is also going up. And the margins are getting smaller. We have staff to pay out of the money we get for school meals as well. Now, we are really, really trying to hold out and not put our school meals up because we know the families in our communities are already under their own pressures for, for, for food bills at home and energy bills. And therefore, the schools in the middle are, are, are soaking up those costs at the moment. But it can't go on. Um, it, it, something needs to be done. Um, and the other thing, Paul, is that particularly infants who get free school meals, they you don't have an option for putting up prices for them because they're not they're not paying for it. No, we get I think two pound thirty four is what we get from the government for those for those meals, but the the value of that is going down and down. So we have to pay the the the, uh, the staff costs out of that and the food costs, and it's it's not enough as it as it was really. It was barely enough, and now it's really, really difficult to actually balance the, the food budget in the school. And that's just one of many budgets that we're, we're having to look to, uh, to, to to square at the moment. So what does that mean for children going in and getting their school dinners? Does it mean they're going to get less chicken, less meat, smaller portions? No. no. It, you know, for many, many children, that meal is really, really important and it needs to be nutritionally balanced. It needs to be filling because, you know, they need their, they need their tanks full for the learning they do through the school day. So we're not reducing full portions and I don't know a school leader who who is actually there might be some anecdotes around but I, I, I any school leader that I've spoken to and I speak to many there's no way we're reducing school um school portion sizes but we are you know something's got to give us some point in terms of do we raise the cost of those meals particularly the ones that are paid for but you're quite right the infants are and and children on free school meals which is about 45 percent of my school of the children on free school meals anyway the money we get from the government for those isn't keeping pace anywhere near with the rapidly rising food costs and the rapidly rising energy costs. That's a picture in Devon then. Let's go to North London now. Evelyn Ford, head teacher at Copthall School. Uh, talk us about the picture there. Paul uh, is saying something's got to give. What is it that you think we'll have to give? 100% echo what Paul has just said. Um, everything that's happening in North London and I think in schools across the country are exactly what Paul has just said. Um, I'm not quite sure where the Education Secretary felt this headroom that he kind of alluded to in school budgets is coming from. And we have to look at absolutely everything. Obviously, our young people are at the centre of, of absolutely everything, making sure that, you know, they are well fed, that we can keep the heating on in the winter months and so on and so forth. But Paul absolutely right something has got to give and I know that there are heads who are thinking about redundancy looking at class sizes what does that look like because our budgets are you know really really tight and I think what a lot of leaders will say is we could see this coming down the pipeline months ago. It feels like we're, walk we're sleepwalking <laughs> into a massive crisis. And again, it goes back to school leaders who have got to think strategically in terms of picking up the cost for this. And I don't think that's okay. I think that the government need to look at themselves and think about we are going through a really challenging time just 
nationally and actually what we are here to do is really to give that brilliant education to our young people that whole wraparound pastoral care and now we're thinking about well which energy provider can we go to that's going to give us the best deal and I reached out to some Barnet heads and one of them messaged me to say that they have been projected an estimate of a 300% increase in their energy costs. Wow. That is unsustainable and something will give and what we sincerely hope that it's not about the teaching and learning whereby you then end up cutting staff costs. Uh, but, but where can you, I, mean, I suppose there's a point you're making, Evelyn, that you're there to sort of run the school and, and make sure that education is good, not, you know, constantly trying to rerun the budget and try and save some money. But where, do, I mean, do you then have to start, you talk about redundancies. I mean, it's a 300%. That's a reality. Yeah. yeah that, you know, that, that is a reality. And as Paul said, you know, we're looking at the cost of one teacher. And, you know, that's a lot of money, which will then impact on teaching and learning and the fabulous outcomes that we're all striving to achieve for our young people. So actually, I don't think it should be us making that decision. I think it's about... Um, I think it's about the DfE, the government, looking at this massive problem and saying, we need to do this for our young people, put our children at the heart of the decision making. Uh, I'm sure that they'll uh, be listening. And actually, the point, Evelyn, when he was talking about the headroom, I really pressed Nadeem Zahari on this. He said he'd got some extra headroom in his budget. And I said, that's very good. It's very good. It's very good you've got that. Are you going to give it to the schools? And he just kept saying he was looking at it. So I did do my best. I did my best for you. <laughs> uh, let's bring in Sammy Wright then, Deputy Head at Southmore Academy in Sunderland. Uh, Sammy, the picture there with you, what's the impact of rising bills having on your school? I mean, I think it's, it's a similar similar impact. But what I would what I would like to talk about, actually, is I've, I've been recently visiting a lot of schools um, around our area and across the country, actually, for, for a new book that I'm researching. And I've had some really interesting insights into the different pressure that different schools have. So if I give you an example, I visited the first school, quite a small rural school, with a building that was so old that their insulation was made of horsehair and had compacted, so effectively was not working at all. Because of the nature of the building, their radiators were also in the ceiling, and that was the only place they could get them. So in terms of the bills, actually the, the fact that the the um, school estate has degraded so much, then compounds all the issues around heating. And if you also then think about the difference of scale in different schools, again, if you're in a very small school, you have much less of a margin for error. So there's all sorts of different pressures to happen in different circumstances. And what I would point to as well on top of this is that as we've kind of gotten more distance from the lockdowns, it seems to me that the biggest thing we've learned about supporting kids in the aftermath of COVID is that we have to be supporting the most uh, naughty problems. So largely, a lot of the kids who coped okay, but were a bit behind, that's really easy to catch up. But the ones who've really, really lost their engagement with school, who really had deterioration in mental health and stuff like that, those children are in real crisis, and unfortunately, intervening with them takes a lot of intensive work. So it's not just that budgets are being squeezed, but it's that there's this real urgent doing stuff that actually demands a lot of expenditure. 
And unfortunately, I think that to have this squeeze coming on the back of all the things that have gone on with COVID actually means that those students who have dropped off the map, as it were, are the ones who are going to suffer the most. And I suppose when you need that intensive work uh, and uh, both, fi- you know, both money, but also time and effort from teaching staff, they're not going to be able to do that if they're, you know, try to find a better energy provider or, or worse, try to plug the gap of colleagues who've been made Absolutely. redundant. Absolutely. And, and you know, then you simultaneously have the issue coming from the other end that those kids are often the ones whose home lives are chaotic and who are impacted at home by the massive increase in cost of living. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually speaking right now from a, an alternate provision that I'm visiting. And, you know, here you have people who have really, really complex needs um, and they need attention. They need um, care. And I just feel that, uh, that the pressures on top of, you know, 11, 12 years of, of you know, cuts and, uh, and austerity, it really becomes untenable. We need to start talking about schools as investment for the future we need to start talking about the fact that actually you know this is the first place to invest rather than the afterthought uh you know i read somewhere that uh, for the cost of hs2 we could re- rebuild the entire school estate in the uk um, and that's a that's a staggering thought i'm not saying don't do hs2 but i'm just saying think about actually the relative costs and the relative benefits of investment in education well, I really appreciate your um, uh, the, the time of all of you because I know you're, you're all busy running your schools and uh, Sammy, you're going around the country. It's fascinating of slightly depressing insights to what uh, is happening in some some schools. That's Sammy Wright, deputy head at Southmore Academy in Sunderland. We also heard from Evelyn Ford, head teacher at Copthorpe School in North London, and Paul Gosling, head teacher of Exeter Road Community Primary School in Exmouth. He's also the president of the National Association of Head Teachers, able to bring together some of those uh, messages about the impact that. Uh, these rising food and energy bills are having on schools. But as Sammy was just saying there, actually, to some extent, the, um, the, the part, part of the problem is it sort of compounds the fact that the children worst affected by schools having to cut their budgets are those whose families will be worst affected by the cost of living crisis at home. So let's sort of look at that, that picture a bit more broadly with, the, with Anne Longfield, former Children's Commissioner for England. And what's your assessment of the situation in schools? Um, well, morning, Matt. Um, well, I think we heard it there, really, from the um, leaders in schools. Um, schools are the first port of call for families. They Schools are in touch with families. They see what's happening every day. Parents will come to them um, often if they've got a crisis at home. And they can see with children if things aren't going well. They can see if children, as was said then, are coming into school with dirty clothes and without their lunch or um, really without getting the sleep they need. And, and, and what is the case is that pretty much for every head I te- I've talked to over recent months, it's something which has become more frequent and more extreme. Those um, uh, children and families who are in really difficult situations. I mean, the first time I went into a school and saw a food bank, I remember being quite shocked by that. Um, it was a food bank by the door. Um, there were rails of clothing. There were washing machines for those kids that needed to wash their clothes but didn't have one at home. Sadly, more and more schools have that as a norm. Now, fantastic, they're responding to the needs of families, but isn't it dispiriting and a sad 
um, uh, to think that actually schools are having to step in here because these families are, um, you know, in a desperate situation. And what impact do you think this will have on the children who most need support? Because quite often, you know, these things are cumulative. They take a while to sort of work their way through into problems next term, next year, in the years to come. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, we already had a lot of children in poverty before the pandemic. And let's remember the pandemic was a, a big financial blow to a lot of families who were in the most precarious situations. So about just a one in three children were already are already in poverty. And those families are the ones that have the least kind of financial reserves. You know, they've used all their savings. They can't work any more hours because they've got childcare responsibilities so often those families are saying that they feel that they've really reached their limits and they're looking ahead to you know the winter and what will happen as prices continue to rise but the effect on kids you know it affects their health um we know their education suffers um employment prospects will suffer um and it kind of eats away at their own self-belief and confidence um clearly if you know if a child's in poverty for you know, a short period of time, it's it's not quite, it's not the same as someone who's in, in entrenched poverty for for years. But let's remember as well, most of these families are working. 75% of the kids in poverty are in households where families are working, often with more than one job. So it's something which really will affect their ability to be able to develop and um, have the kind of you know childhood that we all wish them to have, but after the pandemic, they will already have been set back by the pandemic. So it makes it even more difficult for those kids to even recover. Never mind get ahead. Anne Longfield, really good to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time today, uh, giving us your perspective. Anne Longfield, former Children's Commissioner for England. So we've been discussing the impact of rising uh, costs, bills, food bills, energy bills on schools, and the way that that's affecting children. Let's speak now to Robert Halfond, Conservative MP, who chairs the Education Select Committee. Morning, Robert. Uh, good morning. Hello. Uh, we'll speak more broadly about the, uh, Nadim Zahari's education plans, but what, what's your assessment? Are you hearing from schools that they are struggling? Uh, you know, we're hearing from uh, schools that their energy bills going up 100%, 200%, 300%. You know, that's, that's a couple of teachers in some cases. Um, are you concerned and do you want the government to step in? I am concerned because uh, clearly we've had two difficult years of the pandemic. I'm glad the government have got uh, uh, an extra seven billion for schools and five billion for the catch-up fund. But uh, the problem is, is that with the increased energy bills, some of that extra money will be eaten up by paying for for these bills. I, I heard the uh, Secretary of State's interview on Friday on your program and he said that they will do something i think that's incredibly important because we want extra funds to schools to be spent on front line um, on teachers and support staff on helping kids with extra tuition not on uh, um, paying their energy bills and on the uh the, the broader conversation i had with uh, nadim zahawi um i asked him uh, to sort of set out his his plans for schools he talked about um uh, how he was spending lots of money and um, uh, he was focusing on skills and T-levels and all of that. But one of the things that really struck me was he, he mentioned they, they took the cabinet to Stoke and he said they were in Stoke and there was only one school in Stoke which was rated outstanding. And it struck me as interesting because, 
the Conservatives have been in government now for 12 years. And it seems odd that we have this situation where cabinet ministers say, isn't it terrible, this situation? We're definitely going to do something about this. Do you think that the Deems of Harvey's plans for schools rise to the occasion? Well, I think we've got, it's important to know, we've got 1.9 million more children in good or outstanding schools um, since um, 2010. But there is a lot more to to be done. I support um, a lot of what Nadeem, uh, Nadeem is doing. I, be, I definitely think he's got a grip of the department. At least he's got a plan, schools, skills and, and, and families. Um, where I kind of question the government is um, I think that there needs to be much more done on social injustice in education. So, for example, we've got a care, children in care report coming out today, uh, but just 7% of children in care get good passes in English and maths. We know that white working class boys and girls, and we did a report on this in our committee, underperform at every stage of the education system, right through from early years to university, compared to almost every other ethnic uh, group you know if just five percent of excluded children get a good pass in english and maths you know you have something like 40 children excluded um every school uh, day um one way one way or another there, there are enormous social injustices there's also um the, the, the issue i have with nadim and i argue about this all the time is that the government always talk about a knowledge rich education i absolutely believe that people need uh, to learn their times tables maths english but we also need skills uh, in our education system and the government's focus is just post-16 skills. So if you look at design and technology, for example, that's declined by 70% the take up of design and technology since 2010. And this is not an unconservative thing. Margaret Thatcher actually introduced design and technology um, in the first place. We face the fourth industrial revolution. We're going to a world of automation and artificial intelligence. Uh, these kind of uh, subjects are very, very important, yet the government doesn't include it in the baccalaureate. And they gave a few million pounds to fund Latin. I get it. I understand it, why they've done that. But why not fund uh, things like design and technology? And why not make it your priority to address the social injustices of vulnerable cohorts not uh, doing well at all in our education system? And I think they need to do more about that. I think that the schools bill can't just focus on academic capital it's got to focus on social capital uh, uh, as well that's all we've got time for on this episode of the red box podcast don't forget you can listen to me live monday to friday 10 till 1 on times radio and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast and if you're feeling particularly nice why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 